So I'm probably one of the um, few editors to work at the Washington Post that can't spell. <laughs> um, I uh, um, I think visually. I work visually. Okay. Uh, my uh, my uh, grandfather was a photojournalist uh, mm. in the, oh. the Greenville News in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, when he died, he left me all of his camera equipment, and I was cool. Uh, uh, working for the high school paper, and I kind of picked it up and got excited about that. And then I uh, was trying to decide where to go to college and what to do in college, and I wanted to be a photojournalist, and you know, and that's kind of how that started. Um, but it was very much focused on visual, visual yeah. presentation, visual storytelling. I bet he saw some your grandfather some really amazing things. Yeah. Back in those days. Yeah. So one of the stories he tells about um, only having three three bulbs on assignment. So mm. he could take three pictures <laughs> because, and, it, and that was only on a big news assignment. Most assignments would be a one bulb assignment. <laughs> wow. wow. Better Talk get about it. doling out the resources, Welcome to the Nexus Teaser Podcast, an audio appetizer for our monthly UX meetups. I'm Ben Watson. I'm a professor uh, at NC State's Computer Science Department. I'm Joe Schramm. I'm a product designer and product manager here in Raleigh. And I'm Stephen King, and I'm a professor of emerging technologies at the School of Media and Journalism at UNC. Great. Uh, we're here to talk to you, Stephen, about um, learn a little bit about you before your event later this month. So you got into this technology stuff fairly quickly. Was um, uh, your journalism education in any way non-traditional, or was it pretty straightforward textual journalism? I was a photojournalism major okay. uh, and probably the first new media major at uh, oh, okay. there. So we had gotten into uh, to Flash and doing some things like that with photos and video and um, and, and on photos and audio and slideshows and that kind of thing. Um, but it was very much on a vis traditional visual uh, journalism degree. Hmm. So you being in ActionScript and Flash and messing around with macaroni and stuff, I'm guessing that was you doing that? Or was that did you have professors who were like, hey, you should look at these tools? Um, I think there was this kind of a uh, mix of both kind of self-taught. I remember uh, the uh, MSNBC had an internship opening. MSNBC.com had an internship opening. Those days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, Brian Storm was one of the leaders in the field, and I knew I wanted to work for him. And I had a print, traditional print portfolio, and I was like, I can't send that to MSNBC.com and think I'm going to get it. So a buddy taught me, here's how you make a button in Flash, and here's how you publish it, and this is what ActionScript is, and good luck. And I spent my entire spring break sleeping on a cot in the lab learning how to do Flash. Mm. Made it on a DVD, or CD, sorry, a CD at the time. Mm -hmm. sent, it, uh, <laughs> sent it to him in the mail, um, and I did not get the internship. Uh, but every um, every time I did a new project for school, I would send it uh, to Brian. He would email me back uh, critique. And well, that's awesome. So I would send him a disc. He'd email it back. And then uh, at some point he said, I have this uh, this job opening for the uh, Winter Olympics in 2002 in Salt Lake City. Um, and I found out later he basically just had a little extra money and he was taking a gamble. Mm. He didn't really need me, but he thought there was mm. something there and he wanted to invest in it. And uh -huh. he gave me an opportunity. And... Um, and so I was able to learn visual storytelling from him that really kind of set my career. Cool. That's incredible. Yeah. What a wonderful mentor. 
That's during the Microsoft partnership too. It right? was, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we went and trained out at Redmond uh, at, at Microsoft's campus, and and that's kind of where we got started. And so they had a lot of technology investment there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and MSNBC seems like the right place to do new tech and journalism. There was a time. <laughs> I mean, really, like that there was, was a the spot time. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. Uh, and you know, Brian Storm, my one of my great. Um, a person who really invested in me taught me a lot, and part of that was leveraging the technical resources around him mm-hmm. uh, that were there to get good storytelling done. So your first stint at Washington Post, when you got there and you were kind of showing journalists there, hey, we could be doing this kind of stuff, how did they receive that? Were they like, uh, who's this kid rolling up in here, or, or were they into it? That was a very unique time in the Washington Post, where the WashingtonPost.com was specifically focused on trying new things, and I never felt that you know people were throwing me away like, oh, I don't care what this young guy mm. says. Mm. Um, you know, I was right out of school, which was kind of interesting, um, and so there was some really unique opportunities there to try new things, and there wasn't the focus on the revenue side. You know, back uh, 2003, 2005 sure. times, um, and so we really were. Um, given the opportunity to do some great stuff. And what's amazing is where those people have gone that I worked with there and how they've spread out across the industry and are leading the media storytelling industry now. Hmm. Um, and we had a really great time kind of experimenting early on. What sort of the technologies did you experiment with? Hmm. So the web, I would imagine? Yeah, so it was all on the internet. Like, yeah. um, it was basically this. Uh, but I remember uh, when we, uh, I remember the idea of an Ajax call. That mm. while we can change how we do the web where we don't have to load a page every time, that yeah. we can actually bring in dynamic data, that was a big deal. <laughs> right? um, I was telling my students today, we we're talking about, um, about APIs, and I said, I remember the day that Google announced Google Maps API. Mm, uh-huh. And we could put a map on every single article. Now, it wasn't a good idea, but we could. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so we tried a lot of things like that. You know, I remember Snowfall, right? That was what, 2007, 2008, no, something was, like that? Uh, longer, um, 2011. 2011, oh, so okay. it was later. So that was right during your second stint. after I left. That was after you um, left. So I had already left. Uh, um, that I left? And so for our podcast listeners who don't know, Snowfall was this kind of seminal moment okay. in this work, yes. right, where the New York Times released this big Sunday magazine feature that had kind of an endless scroll to it, right? With um, interspersed using background images with the text rolling on top of it. Motion graphics, all of the media yep. was very well integrated. And yep. uh, we could be wrong on the date, so let's check the we'll date look it up. Yeah. Um, but uh, one key thing about this was it really made people think about the traditional article template. And how do we, that it doesn't have to be driven by the text. So traditionally, the dominant element on the page had been a photo with a lot of text. And then how do we change that? And that got people changing, uh, thinking about things differently. I remember um, a meeting where I said, I don't want to hear the word snowfall ever again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was the discussion of the industry. It was discuss- I mean, it really was a leader. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't that like I didn't like snowfall. It was that like sure. we have to advance this. We can't just build what the New York Times just built. We have yeah. to build and build on and continue that. And, the, and, and did you start to see that uh, team you were on you know, my sense is that technologists are pretty well embedded into the whole organization. I don't know how yeah. true that is, but the, the sense when you look at their media product is that there's not really like a special ops group doing that anymore. It's everywhere. Yeah. So, for, like, for example, the um, NPR has taken the word digital out of every title. 
Okay, everyone is just digital now, right? Like, there's no right. no separation from that. Um, you know, I think today you see that where um, you have developers at section desks. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal has a front end developer at every desk, like news, sports, finance, mm. all of those. Um, and so I think you're seeing a lot more of, of involvement and having someone who can execute on ideas very quickly um, without having to go through and do a formal requirements document and get uh, resources allocated from the IT department who reports to someone else. Like It's just a lot more integrated, and I think it makes things move a lot faster. Yeah. Well, those folks are journalists now. Yeah, right. I mean, so the developer, journalist, journalist, developer, you know, that is a really very coveted position right now. And that, you know, our students coming out doing like coding journalism, they get jobs very quickly. That's not a problem finding a job. And, and they're um, very excited to be able to do that and use their talents to tell stories. What sort of, what sort of coding do they do in their journalistic work? So um, mostly front-end. Some of them are full-stack uh, developers. Um, so we teach uh, Python and then Django Python. A lot but what, of, what are they building? Um, they're building uh, interactive experiences. Most of the time, okay. data interacting with a new front-end visualization. Okay. Um, that's the majority of what those developers are doing. And Django is like the, the journalism language now, right? It is. So yeah. Django is one of the um, – it's a framework on top of Python that – makes it fast to build data, um, da- like a database um, that has multiple views very mm. quickly. So the goal when it was created is, could we take a data set and get it to the public in a couple of hours? Well, you can't do that, but you can do it in a day and a half, right? And so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, interesting things that you can do with, with uh, Python and Django. So how does your role on your second time uh, at the post differ from the first? So as the uh, editor of innovations, um, I had a team to build some of the ideas that we had. Oh, so okay. we were able to, um, to you know, I could, we could come up with stuff, we could work together, and then we actually had great talent to go in and do that. So um, my initial team was uh, three guys, um, and one's now senior developer, senior front-end developer for Netflix, one's uh, mm-hmm. um, AI developer for MailChimp, um, and so they have gone and done great things. Um, and we had a lot of fun while we were together. Um, but we were very focused on um, taking great technical innovations across the internet and what other people were doing and applying that to mm. um, to journalism. So some of the things we took, like we would like look at ideas that they were doing on gaming websites mm-hmm. and then bring that to the Washington Post. So, um, you know, the little notification that'll pop up at the bottom of the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an application called Toast. I think we were the first people to do that in the news world and we mm. you know, popped up like a piece of toast. Um, and so, toast. you know, we just, we built that and uh, did it in a few days, um, you know, deployed it out and it's mm-hmm. like, hey, this is great. We can now I'll send breaking news notifications to people across the site. Was that a browser extension? Um, not originally. Hmm. Um, well, sorry, the first version was browser extension. The second was if you were on WashingtonPost.com, it's basically JavaScript built into the page. I gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a breaking news alert kind of thing. Correct. Gotcha. So the, the it sounds like most of the people on your team were tech people? So um, I had journalists um, who had turned developers. Okay. And I had developer. <laughs> yeah. And then I had developers who were um, understood storytelling, or they uh-huh. were very visually driven. They had great aesthetic visual presentation skills. So they were still dominantly one or the other, but but broad enough to make a good team. Exactly. So mm-hmm. I could, um, you know, if we're you know we're doing big front end tasks, I'm giving that to a great JavaScript developer. Yeah. Um, when we're working with how do we visualize this data, that's the journalist who's spending most of their time doing those mm-hmm. visualizations, and then they might turn that over to the front-end developer who pretties it up and works with the designer to make it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what, what brought you to the university? 
So I left the dream job to come have another dream job. Uh, um, I really do love what I'm doing. Uh, so why did I come to education? One, I think I wanted um, uh, a little bit more stable, predictable schedule, you know, doing breaking news, always on call. I sure. think that was a, hard. a big uh, piece of it. And we had just had a, our first child. Um, and so that was a, a big piece to it. But um, the major thing for me was that I was going to get to teach. I enjoyed it. I had some experience teaching UNC students already. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I had been doing the international projects where they take students um, overseas for either spring break or for a semester mm-hmm. in the summer. And I would go in and coach those experiences and work with students to tell stories and build out the interactives that they were doing. Uh, and then I'd fly back to the post and go about my job. But in the one in Mexico City, they said, hey, we got this position open. You should really apply. And I was 30 years old. And I thought, I'm too young to be a professor. Mm-hmm. But um, as we uh, kind of moved on and kind of went through the process, I came down here and interviewed. And I was like, wow, I really love teaching. I mm-hmm. really like this. And then the opportunity to be involved with the Reese News Lab, which is uh, an innovation lab in, inside news, which is exactly what I love to do. Um, and so the opportunity was just was perfect. It provided the family need that I had as well as let me do the fun things I wanted to do and teach. So um, I definitely, you know, when you are going to do your talk over at The Hunt, I definitely want to get into more about kind of storytelling for people who make software, right? Um, and we'll talk more about how you taught journalists about technology. One thing I wanted to touch on just as part of the backstory is your uh, entrepreneurial efforts. You had the FilmSync app, and I know you're doing some work with uh, the Horizon folks here in town. So I just kind of wanted to hear about, you know, you're finding these different outlets for all your interests, but it seems like there's a couple things that it makes sense to do uh, in this entrepreneurial way. So yeah. Tell us about that. Um, I like solving problems, and each one of these uh, um, startups have become about one problem that kind of, well, there's something behind this, and there might be business behind it, so maybe we should spin this out. So yep. FilmSync was a project where um, we were trying to connect the phone to what you're watching on television. Hmm. It was very simple, um, but that became a very hard thing to do. But it wasn't hard technically. It was hard from a user perspective. Um, and so what? So tell us about it. Yeah. Tell us, so tell us FilmSync would give you contextual information about whatever you're watching. And right. if you paused it on your DVR or you're watching via streaming, your phone would stay in sync with that. And we were using an ultrasonic audio signal that was just inside the range of the microphones on the phone, but outside the range of human hearing. Hmm. Um, and so we would send the signal and we could, if a commercial comes up, we can show you it's a Nissan commercial, but we can show you a local dealership on a map. Or in a storytelling percent, said someone quotes a stat, we can actually give you that mm-hmm. statistic, visualize it, show you the data source, wow. compare it, right? So we saw this great value to this. Advertisers were really excited about it. Broadcasters were really excited about it. But ultimately, users did not like you monopolizing both of their screens. Um, mm. And so that was something that we never could find a solution of. We tried lots of different apps and different versions, and it did work at you know the um, cult shows like Lost and 24 and those types of things. Yeah, that, that was mm-hmm. the type of thing where people s- were solely invested in that. But the majority of TV watching, people wanted to be able to text message with their friends, and they didn't mm. necessarily want the exact same thing on both screens. So, yeah. so, so what did you think about when Twitter was doing embedded video in the app, and you're running Twitter on the side mm-hmm. and watching football or live video? What did you think exactly. about that? I was like, it's, it's the same kind of thing we're trying it. to do. Yeah, um, there you go. You know, and I think a lot of people have tried to solve this problem, hmm. um, you know, some, uh, some better than others. Um, Netflix has been doing a little bit with it as well. Um, so 
you know, we'll see if it does come to be. Um, I think you're much more likely to see an integrated AR experience where mm -hmm. that type of uh, interaction um, might come just in, a, in another visual presentation around the content, not on your phone specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Amazon's doing it too, right? And they're putting those factoids kind of like pop-up video. Yeah, you might have a watching. point there with your AR because the I understand um, consumers or viewers not wanting to see their only other screen taken over. But when it's AR, everything is a screen. So Exactly. So, <laughs> so maybe we were ahead of our time, I'll say. Um, but one thing I've learned is once you, when you have a user problem, if you, you, know, you, you have no business, right? And so, uh -huh. um, so if you can't get the end user, even though your customer might want it, the mm -hmm. end user didn't. Yeah. And so we learned a lot from that and ultimately oh, yeah. open source the technology and kind of yeah. let it be. Um, do you? I didn't see it in in your list here, but did do you still have your legislature monitor your late night legislature alerts? So Capitol Hound has uh, stopped. Uh, okay, we have um, just stopped, and it became a financial thing. We couldn't sell it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there was this great uh, thing that would allow you to. Um, it's called Capitol Hound, and it would say anything that happened in committee hearings or on the floor. You could sign up for alerts. So if you care about healthcare, mm -hmm. you could get an alert when healthcare was mentioned either read the the transcript of it in that exact segment or listen to the audio and then you know well if I just called a vote for 8 a.m. tomorrow and nobody knows about it we or had, you know 3 a.m. yeah or yeah, 3 right. a.m. which they were doing <laughs> right. um, and so the idea was and it was very helpful to journalists because they didn't have to be in every single um, right. room mm. but you know just cost to produce it just yeah. didn't play out business wise mm. surprise sunlight or somebody didn't snap that up we were um, we were sponsored by uh, the Knight Foundation for a little while which mm -hmm. is what funded it for a couple of years mm. that's mm. cool yeah I wish that sort of stuff I mean uh, the uh, city of Raleigh has alerts like that that are that they, it, they provide as a service I think correct and but yeah. they're just much more open than our yeah. state legislature yeah the state legislature just wasn't well we, we actually thought they might be interested in in providing it as a service but yeah they, they were not <laughs> Why Don't am want I surprised? Scrutiny. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> for sure. Um, well, uh, let me ask you one more question, um, and that is that uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you always try to do whenever you're trying to figure out how to tell a story um, is you try to figure out which technology might be a fit. And so um, that's interesting to me because I'm wondering... Um, how you view the strengths and weaknesses of varying technologies. So, like, on, do you have, like, a short list that you go through? And, and do you, like, think, uh, you know, this would be a good fit for VR but not AR, or this would be a good fit for, um, I don't know, what other technologies are on your list? Um, I think it comes more about, wouldn't it be cool if... Uh-huh. All right. So we say, wouldn't it be cool if you could do whatever that is? And then we see what technology helps us get there, right? Yeah. A lot of times it's VR because wouldn't it be cool if you could go there, right? And yeah. so through VR, we can take you there. Wouldn't it be cool if you could get contextual information um, as you're walking down the street, right? So then AR becomes into that. Yeah. Right? Um, wouldn't it be cool if we could compare data points across this so that we could tell this story about you individually? Well, then now we need AI, Right, mm -hmm. we need a lot more data processing and, and machine learning and those types of things. Mm -hmm. So we can basically um, kind of go down a different path and design. Okay, would it be cool for who? That's a big question. Is mm -hmm. who's the audience? Mm -hmm. What technology do they have available? So if I want to make this 
beautiful, amazing virtual reality experience that has room scale and all of that. Well, that's great, but I'm looking at a very small audience mm-hmm. that can consume that and are willing to download that and kind of go through that marketing process of what it's going to take to execute that well. Um, so maybe we scale back on how great our idea is. Um, uh, we work through um, through what technologies are out there now, right? Is there mm-hmm. something that we can use and leverage that someone's already built? Um, mm-hmm. That can be looking at GitHub uh, repositories. It can be looking at free tools. It can be looking at paid tools because um, sometimes a tool might just help you mm-hmm. get, get, get the essence of what you're trying to do and you didn't have to spend months building a custom experience. And then sometimes you get to the point like, you know what, this would be really cool. The audience isn't quite there yet, but they're going to be soon. So let's go ahead and do this experiment and see how people interact with it. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I have a lot of fun. Is, Could is you give that. us an example, like your Galapagos maybe? or Yeah. So for the Washington Post um, in 2016, uh-huh. okay, so recent, yeah. uh, recent history, um, we pitched the idea of let's go to the Galapagos and take people to see a place they've never seen before. And okay. so it's about problem solving. And so, well, we want to take them to Kicker Rock where there's this beautiful coral and there's hammerhead sharks underneath and there's sea turtles and all of these interacting in this one place, Mm -hmm. all underwater. Well, Mm -hmm. 360 underwater, really hard to do. And so we start looking what's out there and we got a company to ship us the first one off the line from France, the Abyss, the underwater Mm -hmm. rig. Um, Got it just in time to get on a plane and go to, uh, Mm -hmm. to the Galapagos, right? So, um, so we kind of started that and it was a 360 video project. Okay. Um, one of the things that came up there was we wanted to, um, uh, put a camera on this beach that has hundreds of sea lions. Well, these sea lions, um, you're not allowed to get within three feet of them. The park service doesn't allow a human to get in three feet of this. Well, they're so dense across the beach. There's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, sorry, you can't basically walk on that beach. I said, what if we could send a camera out like on a cart shoot the video and then pull it back. Like, sure, no problem. You put it out there before they kind of come at sunrise and, and you can pull it back later. Mm-hmm. Great, wonderful. So my dad and in the garage, we start, we get a stepladder, a drill motor and a remote control car and we basically build a robot camera that will go forward and it will go backwards and that's all it'll do. <laughs> and, um, and that was the start for what ultimately became our virtual reality robot. And so I we see. built this rover that does a lot of other things now. But at the time it was about solving a specific problem and well, the technology we needed was a drill motor and a remote control car. Why did you decide to use VR rather than, tra- or 360 video at least, rather than traditional video? Well, for one, that had been done before. Yeah. Um, and so we were trying to do something new and different. Yeah. Uh, but two is we wanted to take you to a place, give that immersive experience so that you mm-hmm. could look around and feel as if when you're swimming through this cove and this sea lion comes underneath you and you're in a headset, sea lion comes underneath, you look down, you look up and you actually see this kind of sea lion go on his back right over you. It is an amazing experience and yeah. something that you couldn't capture with standard video. So was that rig a full sphere or not not just a hemisphere? Yeah, it's a oh, full, that's cool. It's a full 360 experience. And well, 360 can go many ways so, around the sphere. You yeah, know? so 360 in both directions. Okay, so, on both axes. <laughs> so awesome. Great. What did the sea lions do when they rolled up on the beach and this weird thing is there? Did they just ignore it? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I should tell you that the robot failed on the f- in the field. <laughs> oh, bummer. Bummer. <laughs> um, it actually got stuck in the sand. The sand was a little softer than we had. Uh, oh. It's hard to go to Mars, man. <laughs> it's it's going to be tough. It's, it's going to be it tough. It really is. And you're in the middle of the Galapagos. There's, I can't go get new tires. Like, there's no... <laughs> uh, so that but shot you, didn't work. Um, I also don't think it would have worked in our experience now because you would have felt as if you were a sea lion. You would have been so low to the ground and kind of this 
like you know it's a little step ladder it's about three oh, feet I off see. the ground so it would have been, it wasn't It'd the be perspective like that you are seal cam yeah right seal cam which yeah. could have been interesting that could have been cool uh, <laughs> yeah but um, so what we did is we came back and we're like wow we've learned there's a yeah. lot of things we need to do to make this better so we now have a version that will go on sand that's great so, and okay. you're ready for your next usage of it exactly cool well thanks for this background yeah, thank and, you uh, we're gonna promote this before the talk and folks who listen to it will get a chance to understand who you are and your journey and how you got to today so thanks great thanks thanks Stephen. thank you you've been listening to the nexus teaser podcast our meetups happen monthly on fridays at 3 p.m at the hunt library this year's meetups and podcasts are sponsored by eastman chemical lexus nexus and kpit our music was composed and performed by ricky hopper To learn more about Nexus and its meetups, podcasts, and projects, go to our website at nex.ncsu.edu. We're also on Twitter at nexus underscore USA. Thanks for listening.